keep your head in the game. That's what my coach told me. I had gone one for six from the field, frustrated by what I perceived were some missed calls by the referee. And going for a loose ball, I simply elbowed and hip-checked my opponent. Get your head in the game. It's not over yet. And I would say that that perhaps is a message that we need to hear today, to keep our head in the game. It's not over yet. During COVID, we saw a rise in mental health issues. And approximately 20% of adults in the United States struggled with some sort of mental health, according to experts. Not all of the numbers are in, and they do seem to be rising. Psychosis is a phrase that those in that world have used to say there is a loss of reality in those places, and COVID really highlighted that in many ways. That is not my field of expertise. But what my field of expertise is, is our spiritual health. What is reality? What do we mean by reality versus perspective? Well, we're going to jump into some scriptures here in just a few moments. And as we jump into those scriptures, we're going to see what is reality? And what is perspective that drives us away from reality? And how do we get our attention back to that reality? And what does that mean to us today? As we jump through that, those questions together, would you join me as we pray? Lord, we do love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. We ask, oh Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And Lord, as we talk about reality, and as we talk about uh, perspective, I would ask that just in a very real way, you would help us each individually to identify where we're at. Knowing, recognizing, Lord, that you are not just the great physician, you are also the great medicine that we take, that you prescribe. And so by the power of the gospel, we ask that you would give us this medicine, this medicine that is you, that we would receive you, that we would walk in you and with you, that we would give you glory in all things. And that you would be praised in our lives individually and in our lives corporately. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are going to be three questions that we're going to walk through, wrestle with together based on the text. The text, by the way, is uh, Psalm 73. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Psalm 73. As you're if you don't have your Bible, there are some Bibles in the back. You're welcome to go to the back and get those. Raise your hand, and one of our ushers or greeters is happy to get those to you. Also, you can use your phone, but I am going to ask. Would you please stay in the Bible if you have your phones out? Uh, it's my step of faith trusting you, and your step of faith staying with me on that, okay? All right, great. We're in Psalm 73, and we're going to walk through some questions that are posed. First question is this, what is reality? The author is going to take us there immediately. He's going to help us have a framework to understand the rest of the passages. But then he's going to be painfully honest in this. And he's going to recognize that his eyes move from reality to perspective. That that's going on around him. And then there's going to be a shift, a dynamic shift in the text. 
And we're going to see based on that dynamic shift that it doesn't just uh, uh, infect him internally. It's also the way he perceives the world around him. And he is going to shift back to reality. You'll see that uh, in the text as we walk together. There are uh, we're currently going through a series called Epic Poetry. It's a series on the Psalms. The Psalms are broken into five books. Psalm 73 is in the third book. In this third book, it really identifies um, the Messianic kingdom, the promises of this Messianic kingdom. And we see it laced throughout from uh, Psalm 73 to Psalm 89 is this third book, and, and you'll, you'll see it if you continue to read through these passages, you would see that spelled out. The author today is Asaf. So Asaf authors, uh, actually 12 of the Psalms. Uh, this is the second one that he authors. Asaf is a worship leader. He's a worship leader. And you're, I think you're just going to love his heart today. You're going to love how he is able to stand in front of this amazing, glorious, good God and worship him and be really honest and transparent about what's going on in the world around him and himself specifically. And then you're going to, I think, be encouraged at how he shifts his focus back to God. We're going to struggle on this side of the cross to say, well, well wait a minute, we're we're not Israel, so how do we get there? How do, how do our hearts become pure? And we're going to talk about the gospel and how the gospel applies to not, not just those who haven't received Christ yet, but also to the believer. And we're going to walk through this together. Church, are you ready? Oh, sorry, was that out loud? Hey, hey are you ready? Yeah. All right, let's do this. We're going to jump right in. Uh, as we talk about what is reality, let me just give you a quick definition. The uh, reality is the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. So things as they actually exist. Let's see how Asaf takes our mind to the things that actually exist as he puts this framework together. He says this in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. It's important that word truly is an emphatic statement. Uh, Asaf, in writing this, wants the readers or hearers to underline, highlight, identify the importance of the next few words. The next few words being, God is good to Israel. He wants them to get it. It is very important. He's going to use this phrase truly several times throughout this passage. This is the first and probably the focus of, of everything we're going to have to say today. God is good. Asaf identifies that beyond a theological concept. God is good. Not just good in general terms, but very specific terms. And even today, as we shift our eyes onto reality that God is good, we have to say, do I have a theological understanding of that phrase? Or is there a reality in the application of that phrase that I live? So it's not just I understand it theologically, but I also live this out. God is good. God is good when we lose our job. God is good when relationships are broken. God, God is good when there's more month than money. God is good. 
It's beyond a theological concept. And it's the starting place that a soft wants the hearers and readers of this text to understand. God is good to those who are pure in heart. As I said, we're going to come back to this idea of what it means to be pure in heart a little bit later. What is reality? The reality is that God is good. Not just a theological concept. He really is good. And we're going to see that spelled out. But what happens when our point of view changes from reality to perspective? What happens? Well, we're going to see this, starting at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Remember, he's writing this from the perspective of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a very hilly city. Uh, It's very rocky. And he's identifying with words that everyone can understand. My feet almost slipped. Yeah, you know, like when you're walking up a hillside. Yep, just like that. That's what I did. You know how sometimes those rocks will trip you? They'll, they'll make you stumble? Yep, like that. That's what I almost did. Now let's hear why. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. If you have your Bible in front of you, I want to encourage you to underline, highlight the word prosperity. You may think that um, you don't know the Hebrew word, but I would suspect that most of you in here do. The word that's translated prosperity in this passage is the word shalom. It's the idea of peace, not just a general peace. So if you go to Israel today, you'll be greeted by shalom. Uh, And it's just a greeting. In the scriptures, it was more than a greeting. It meant that you had peace spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. You were at peace. And Asaf is saying that these wicked people, they seem to be at peace. Like, even though they're wicked, they have nothing to do with God, they're at peace. And it almost caused his feet to stumble. He almost slipped in those places. How is it that wicked people could be okay with things? How is it that wicked people could seem to be blessed by God? And he's struggling. And in his perspective, he recognizes, or in this perspective, he's saying, it seems like the wicked win. It seems like those people who don't love God, who don't care about God, it seems like they win. And this is how he explains it. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I probably ought to explain that a little bit. Uh, Because that sounds like a slam. It's actually a compliment. Uh, To be fat in the ancient world was an idea of, of having an abundance the God's blessing was being poured out on them so much so that they were, they were fat with it. They had more than they needed. It was a sign of God's blessing. And he's saying that those wicked people, they're fat and sleek. They have more than enough. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They have more than enough. Uh, And look, they're even willing to take from others. Violence. uh, Violence is their uh, their garment. They They are willing to walk in such a way that if they want something, they have no problem oppressing other people. And they seem to have peace in those places. The wicked win. From a soft perspective in this moment. And maybe you've been in that place. How is it that some of the most corrupt people can live so lavishly 
can live in what seems like the blessings of God. Meanwhile, you go without. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. How can these wicked people be so healthy all the time while we struggle with our health? How can these wicked people have so much and, and I go without? How can this be? And that's Asaph's struggle. He continues on. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Like everything is going well. And plus, the things that they're saying, even against God, seems to be working out. Seems like the wicked win. And Asaph says, my feet nearly slipped. That, all, that perspective of the wicked winning was enough to make me stumble. And I don't get it. And I, I love Asaph, this worship leader, is, is sharing with all of Israel this real struggle, honest struggle. And he continues on. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So they even mock God. Asaph, in this perspective, as his eyes have shifted from reality to perspective, is also going to go down another road. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Why should I work so hard? Why should I, why should I do all these things for God when uh, I'm not getting anything in return? I, I have a few of these um, personal illustrations. I apologize for those of you who don't care. I apologize. <laughs> uh, but I remember I was, I was an eighth grader, and it was the first time that I was kind of interested in spiritual-ish things. I started reading the scripture without anybody telling me, without my priest hassling me. I just did it. I actually kind of liked it. I was really interested. I started memorizing some of the scriptures before I had received Christ as my Savior, I was interested in these spiritual things. And then I had this prayer, an eighth grade prayer. Hang in there with me. Nothing against eighth graders. If any of you are in eighth grade, God bless you. I was most likely way more immature than you are. So I recognize that and state that from up front. Here was my prayer. God, I want to follow you. I want to honor you. I want to glorify you. If you just make me a better basketball player. Could you do that? It was contingent on this if. Like God was going, yeah, he's a first rounder. That's a good deal for me. No. I'll tell you that the more I dug into the scriptures, the worse I got. Horrible. And so I just went, God doesn't work. God doesn't work. And I put the scriptures away and I put my prayers away and I didn't come back to it for years. It's not worth it. Now, if I'm not getting out of it what I want to get out of it, then what is, what is it worth it? That was my perspective as an eighth grader. And Asaph is going down the same line of, is it worth it? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I, said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Let's, let's uh, deal with that first part in verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation 
of your children. Asaf, even in the state of looking at the perspective around him, identifies this. If I would have stated to the people what I am thinking right now and writing down, I would have betrayed them. It would have been like Sadie up here leading worship and going, I, we'll sing some songs, I guess, and uh, it's fine. I don't even know if it's worth it to do this, um, but they're okay songs. Let's, let's just try it. It would be as if she did that. That's what he's saying. I don't want to be that. We're not going to do that. Uh, uh, Sadie is not going to do that, just so you know. She, she's not like that. It's not worth it. But then what happens when our perspective, uh, our point of view changes from perspective back to reality? Here's the transitional statement. We're going to read through it carefully. He has gone from, okay, this is the focus, to this is where my focus has been, this perspective. Yep, and in this perspective, the wicked win, and it's not worth it in this perspective, this temporal uh, uh, situation. But then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He's going back to reality. He's taking his eyes off the temporal, and he's going to the eternal. He's looking at reality that God actually is good. And he's going to walk through this together. But it comes in a place of worship. And, and I want to identify what that means. Because we, we could just gloss over this real quick and really miss the point. For him to go into the, the sanctuary of God is a big deal. Was, was there music there? Yeah, sure. They, they worshiped through music. That happened. But also, there were sacrifices. And these sacrifices were literal sacrifices with animals. And for some... For most of Israel, it was a matter of raising up this animal and presenting it. For some of Israel, it, it made them purchase an animal and bring it in uh, uh, to have it sacrificed. It came at a cost. It was a sacrifice. To go into the sanctuary of God was not just about musical worship, but about sacrificial worship. For the priests... To take that animal and to sacrifice, I mean, we have the book of Leviticus and Numbers that identify in very great detail what the priests were supposed to do, how they were supposed to manage these animals and dispose of their bodies and all of the mess that went along with it. And you can imagine there was a lot of mess. How they were supposed to cleanse themselves afterwards to be ceremonially pure. To go into the sanctuary of God is not just to go and sing some songs, but it is also sacrificial in nature. And it takes them from this perspective to reality. That there is a holy God who loves us, who is calling us to himself, who is above all of these things, and he is worthy of our sacrificial worship. He gets that in this place. It's what switches him. It's, it's one of the reasons, very honestly, it's one of the reasons that uh, as we've been talking on leadership team and ministry team and with the elders and with the trustees, as we've been dis having these discussions about, hey, why do we have life preaching on our campuses? Well, it, it's because we want to come sacrificially and worship before God. Why not just stay at home in your pajamas and watch online? Can't that just be good enough? No, because there is something that happens when we sacrificially come together, united in Christ, and worship this holy God. 
And it has a way of taking our perspective from here to here. So with that in mind, let's keep looking and see where it goes. One of the things he identifies as his eyes go back to reality is that the wicked fail. Truly, there's that phrase again. It's an emphatic underline highlight, this next part. You set them in slippery places. Well, it seems like they're at peace. It seems like everything is okay. No, they're, they're about to slip. Uh, ultimately, they will fall. And I see that when I look at this holy God. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And then he does something that he hasn't done so far. He takes a look at himself. You know, at first it was this idea of those wicked people. <laughs> and now he's realizing something about himself. That he has fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, watch how he says it. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. Now without going into all the details and the etymological roots of these words, let me just say it this way. We are referring to the emotional center of the person and the intellectual center of the person. He is saying that both emotionally and intellectually, I've been pricked. I recognize the reality of my situation. And what is that? I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The word brutish there is a funny word. It's associated with cattle. What is he saying? He's saying this. I am like a cow out in the field who has no idea what's going on in the kingdom of Israel and what needs to happen for this kingdom to be successful in any way, shape, or form. I am in a field chewing my cud. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I am. Compared to a king who has to uh, understand how this kingdom works and manage this kingdom. He's saying, I am like that cow to the king of Israel just like we are like that to God. God knows beyond what we know. He is managing his kingdom. He is orchestrating things behind the scenes that we will never know about. And quite frankly, we don't need to. He's saying, in my ignorance, I judged wrongly. I thought that the wicked would win. I thought that it wasn't worth it. I'm like a cow chewing its cud. God knows better than me. And then he comes to this next stage that God cares for me. Not just for God so loved the world in general, he loves everybody. Not just like God is good to Israel, this nation uniquely, but that God loves me. God cares about me individually and specifically. He has a relationship with me. And that's an important piece uh, it's not the way that they generally thought in the Middle East during these days, uh, but it is an important point for us to grab a hold of. He says it this way, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, even though like, I'm like a cow in the field. I'm with you. <laughs> you are this God who spends time with me. You hold my right hand. What does that sound like? A child holding their dad's hand. I have seven kids. I love my kids. We, we, went from, uh, we went from man to man coverage to zone coverage at three. We have seven. Okay, so just keep that in mind. 
one of the places that we lived had a really cool uh, candy shop in the downtown area, and my kids loved the candy shop. And they're pretty smart. They recognize that from where they're standing, the fastest way to get there is just straight across the street. They'd just run right across the street, and they could get right there. And of course, I'd hold their hands. Nope. <laughs> Can't do that. Why? Well, uh, because you get hit by a car. Nope. I want candy. There. That's where I'm going, Dad. Nope. So what would we do? We would walk to the corner. We'd wait for the light to change. We'd walk across together. We'd go down. It was not the quickest way to the candy shop. At that time, they were not crazy about my method. At the same time, I had to hold their hand to keep them safe. And Asaf is identifying that in this place. God holds my hand. Because I think sometimes that maybe the wicked are going to win. That, that maybe what's going on in the world is worth it. And it's not worth it to follow God. And I need a holy God to hold my hand and walk me through this path. And as I walk, I recognize that he very specifically, very kindly, very lovingly has guided me safely through this course. It's not the way I would have, uh, I would have set out on my own, but it is the perfect way that a loving God would care for me. And I just want to receive that. And we see that in this passage. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And then this is the key. God is the goal. God is the goal. It's not the stuff that the wicked get. It's not all the things. It's not even good health. It's God. He's the goal. Uh, he's where we're supposed to be directed. You know, one of the things when we, when we talk about eternity and even the Lord's return or even graduating from this life into the next uh, people will sometimes get like, oh, I don't know, I'm not really ready for that. Uh, be careful. Because sometimes that, that, that's an identifier of a temporal reality. Like this, this temporal, or rather perspective, this temporal perspective of like, no, I'm not ready for that kind of stuff. Wait, wait a minute, there's this holy God and he loves us. And there is, there is something beautiful. And he's not done with this yet. I'm not saying try to go early. That's not what I'm trying to identify. But God's timing is perfect. And when he calls me home, I'm going. <laughs> and when he calls me home, I, I'm, I'm thankful. I don't, I'm not going to live in that regret. I'm not going to live in that, I don't want to do this. No, God, here we come. Come and get me. We're ready. An identifier that, of that, though, is perhaps what's going on in our heart, that we're focused on some temporal things, some perspective, not reality. God is our goal. Whom have I in heaven but you? Riches? Nope, they're not there. Uh, what is going to get me into heaven? God. Who's going to welcome me into heaven? God. Not my job. Uh, not the things and the stuff. It's God. Who have I in heaven but you? God. That's who we have, period. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my inheritance. Asaf recognizes that when he comes to the place of worship. That in this place of worship where we sacrificially give honor and glory to him, there is something that takes us from the temporal to the eternal, from perspective to reality, from our world to his world. 
And worship is a part of how that happens. He identifies that God, uh, that, that uh, rather God is the goal and also that God is worth it. And that's a part of where we started today. Keep your head in the game. God is worth it. It's going to be real easy to get off into perspective. But God is worth it. It's really easy to focus on what other people have or don't have or what you could have or don't have. But God is worth it. Change that perspective to reality. What is reality? God is good. Even when bad things happen, yeah. Even then. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. Just let that resonate with your heart for a moment. Asaf is saying, okay, all the wicked and the oppression of the wicked and all of the things that they do and all the things that they have and even the perspective of the peace that they seem to hold doesn't matter. Because for me, it is good to be with God. It is good to be near God. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God, my refuge, that I may tell of your, uh, of your works. Psalm 73 starts with, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And yet we know that none of us are pure in heart, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As one theologian said, God is the great physician, and as he evaluates us, he gives us a prescription. And the prescription is him. He's also the great medicine that we take. But to receive this great medicine, uh, we need a vehicle. And the vehicle is the gospel. And that gospel doesn't just apply to a one-time salvation moment. But that gospel is true for believers every day of their life. And sometimes people will think, oh, the gospel, isn't that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yeah, that is. Hey, the gospel, isn't that just good news? Yeah, it is. But let's break that down a little bit. Let's talk that through. Here's where it begins. I'm a sinner. And you're like, yeah, I know that, Kenny. Hey, you are too. Right? We're sinners. We're sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have. I have. We're all sinners. I even heard a story about Matt one time sinning. So... It, saying. We're all sinners. And we all fall short of the glory of God and in need of a Savior. And that's the key. If we're in need of a Savior, what's the implication? We're not the Savior. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. We can't save each other. That's not within our power or ability. That is what God uniquely does. It is his work. We need a savior. I can't be smart enough. I can't go to the right church. I can't be baptized enough. I can't, like none of that is what's going to save us. So if I'm a sinner and I need a savior, then what? It's important for us to know that God or Christ gave his life so that we can have life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have Eternal life. Christ gave his life that we could have life. Substituted uh, 
for me on the cross, for you on the cross. The, the debt that we owed, he paid. And that's, that's good news. And it's not just for that first time receiving Christ. That is for every day of our life following. We need to be reminded constantly and consistently that I have this inclination to look at this perspective. And this perspective draws me into sin. And Jesus is the one who shifts me to reality. And we recognize that Christ gave his life so that I could have life. And on the cross, Jesus, and giving up his life, he says this, it is finished. The root of the word, it is finished, is one word, and, and it means paid in full. It's how it was often used. The root of that word is often used in the ancient world to mean paid in full. This God who loves us, who came in the flesh, paid in full your sin and my sin. He's got it. He's got it taken care of. You and I need to hear that. When I trust him, I experience that life. There is a, a, a response, right? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the work of Christ. And as we receive Christ, as we confess him with our mouth, as we believe him in our heart, there is a work of God that is transforming in us. And we have to receive that as a gift. There's another piece that I want to talk about that is terribly important that we often overlook. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Just pause for a second and think about that. Jesus is coming again. He's coming for his church. It's a part of the good news. I like to say it this way. We live sacramentally. Uh, in this world, meaning that everything, everything is there to impart, reveal God to us. This week, I'll give you some examples. Within 24 hours, my fridge, my dishwasher, and my hot water heater went out. I know that you would have handled it really well. <laughs> it took me a minute. Cindy's like, are you okay? I need just a minute. I want to tell you, though, that in that place, there was the, the Spirit of God was there. I don't always respond perfectly, and I'm not saying I did this time, but I, I think I responded in faith, and this is what happened. Uh, I just said, okay, God, every week I hold my hands out like this, and I say, I'll receive what you have, and I'll give you what you want, and, and, and here I am, and I recognize on this side of eternity, things break. But there is a day that's coming that nothing is going to break. That the things are going to work exactly the way you intended them to forever. Thank you, Lord. About 24 hours from that, uh, our dog of 15 years we had to put down. Oh, it was sad. And he's my nemesis. Just so you know, like this dog, he loved Cindy. He tolerated me. <laughs> kind of. I'm like, you want to go outside, Bobby? He's like, who are you? <laughs> I'll, take, I'll, I'll take the, never mind. No, I'll just take it. Uh, we had to put him down. And it was, it was hard. But in that place, what a great reminder that there, it should hurt. It should, it should, there should be pain. Death was not God's plan. And we live in that place of going, okay, God, 
This stinks. I don't like this. But I know that there will be a day when I will stand in your presence and there is no more death. And there is only life eternal. And we'll live in that place. What a great reminder as we walk this out day by day sacramentally. Going, okay God, I see that you are good. And I'm hurting in this place. But I love you. And I trust you in this place. He's coming back. He's coming back. Let me share a few passages with you. If they resonate with your heart, praise God. This is in Acts. The angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Paul goes on to say, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Jesus says in Revelation, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one. For what he has done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and end. And then it goes on to say, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Jesus is coming again. And that's a part of this gospel and that's a part of this world. And uh, a part of as, uh, when we live this out day by day, moment by moment, when appliances go out, when those that we love pass we're able to go, you know what? Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's taken me to glory. And that place of glory is utter perfection. And this place where we experience pains and hurts, he's wiping away those tears. He's coming back for us. It's a good thing to remember, church, as we need to get beyond the perspective and back to reality. Uh, in just a moment, the worship team is going to come up as we start to transition our hearts to communion. Communion is for the believer. It's for the follower of Christ that was instituted by Christ uh, as a way for the church to pause and remember what Jesus has done for us. These questions are also given to us to examine our hearts. Paul tells us that we need to do that, to examine our hearts. And so before communion... Uh, it's important to examine our hearts. The early church had some issues. People were going into their time of communion flippantly. Like, oh, yeah, this is, this is time for communion. I'll take my bread. I'll take my cup. It's great. And they started getting sick. Paul says that some of them fell asleep. It's a nice way to say that people died. And part of it was the judgment for the flippancy of going into communion. And so as we look at this gospel, that we're sinners and in need of a Savior, that Jesus is that Savior, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he conquered sin and death, that he rose from the grave and extends life to anyone who calls on him, and he's coming again. As we apply that into our lives, we repent of sin. And this is a good time to do that. You may be in a spot where you go, hey, uh, sorry, I need to go back to those questions real quick. Can you, can you put me back there? There we go. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you were anticipating me, and I appreciate that. But I started blending things in a way I didn't in the last service. So, um, so when we go to communion, we're, we're holding some things out. Lord, if there's any sin in my life, I want to deal with it. 
And that means repenting, turning from my sin and turning to God. So here's some questions. The first one is this. Do I envy the wicked? Are there some things about the wicked that I go, hmm, man, that just seems great. Why, I, they don't love God and look at all the cool stuff that happens to them. Do I question my faith in unhealthy ways? That's an important phrase, unhealthy. Because there are some ways that we should question our faith, even like we're doing going to communion. Am I really following the Lord? Is there sin that's in my life? Those are healthy ways of, uh, of questioning our faith. But there are some unhealthy ways. And those unhealthy ways, I would say an identifier is that we keep using them to not take the next step of faith. I'm scared of that. I don't, I don't want to go in front of everyone and be baptized. Uh, I don't want to give my testimony. I'm, I'm scared of that. I don't want to share the gospel with other people. I'm, I'm scared of what they might say. Those are identifiers. And that would be unhealthy if we're using those as excuses to not progress in our faith. Am I living in my perspective or reality? So am I looking at the world around me or am I looking at reality? This God who is good and is good to me. In my, is my attention fixed on others, what they have or what I don't have? And then how can I better fix my eyes on God? It's a great challenge. How can I better fix my eyes on God? I'll, I want the Holy Spirit to give you an answer on that. I want to challenge you and encourage you to wrestle with him. Some things may be to spend more time in Scripture, reading the Scriptures, memorizing the Scriptures. Some things may be to find a place to serve. Some things may be to engage in a life group. Some things may be to sign up for core discipleship, uh, to get engaged, to share your faith. These may be some things, how you can better fix your eyes on God. Let the Holy Spirit deal with you on that. At Friendship, we have four stations in this room. After you spend some time examining your heart and, and also if you need the time to confess some sin, recognizing that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And as you feel freedom in the Holy Spirit to participate, we encourage you to get both the, the bread and the cup and return to your seat as we worship together. And then uh, we'll participate together. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask, Almighty God, that you would be glorified and honored in our lives. Help us, Lord, to keep our head in the game. To, uh, to receive you, Lord, by means of the gospel, day by day and moment by moment. We love you and we thank you for the bread that was broken, the body that was broken, and the blood that was shed for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.